No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. Hello, and welcome to Know You Tell It, a hybrid story incubator slash performance series. Each Know You Tell It participant develops their own nonfiction piece on the page, then switches with a partner to perform each other's work on stage. Because nothing informs your story like hearing someone else perform your story. From our show Noted comes a story about accepting your accomplishments and honoring your failures, of learning to take the note, and of when to wear the mask and when to let it fall away. Here's Jim Carroll performing Stephanie Willing's Anybody's Came from a Small How Town. Anybody's Came from a Small How Town. You have a face like a mask, my boyfriend told me. Like Glenn Close. Her face is a mask. You should be an actor. <laughs> but I'm a dancer, I said. I haven't acted since sixth grade when I was married in the Christmas play. Your face is perfect, he insisted. Now, I was deeply flattered by the idea that I was meant to be an actor, perhaps purposed and destined to be one. My whole life I wanted to be a ballerina, but God's biomechanical design of my body, combined with my weakness for tacos, ruled out that future pretty early on. <laughs> my degree in modern dance had been shelved temporarily while I worked off debts in a used bookstore, and the baby fat I'd lost dancing came back as 23-year-old adult fat. <laughs> I needed direction. When I was 10, I made a long list of everything I wanted to be when I grew up. These were not options. I expected to actually be all these things. Dancer. Writer. Marine biologist, a.k.a. friend of dolphins. <laughs> Equestrian. I didn't realize equestrian was an adjective, not a career. <laughs> there were some redundancies in the list. Actor. <coughs> Singer. Performer. Inspiration could come from anywhere. One of my chapter book heroines was an aspiring writer, and she took copious notes on everything so that she could write authentic stories. This was my first insight into the craft of writing, and I filled tiny notebooks with the gritty details of my childhood landscape. Twenty years later, I am still finding lists that I made describing my rides to the grocery store. <laughs> Trees. Truck. Brown truck. <laughs> Red truck. <laughs> Fence. Electricity pole. Cow. Cow. <laughs> brown grass. Ah, Texas. <laughs> Aside from the week after I watched The Sound of Music when I wanted to be a nun and walked around with a blanket on my head as a wimple, <laughs> I never considered a career idea that wasn't creative. And despite a heartfelt conversation with my father when I was 12 about how I really thought I could be as good as Macaulay Culkin if I were just given a chance to audition, <laughs> my parents never took any action to further my tween acting career. So I dug deep into dance and forgot about acting. Until I was told my face was a mask and the old desire was unveiled. 
I took my boyfriend's words to heart, and I dug up auditions in Dallas for film, theater, choreography, anything I could get my hands on. I landed a couple of short film spots, started to feel cocky, and then got wind of a regional audition for West Side Story. I had my eye on the part of anybody's, the tomboy who just can't fit in. It was a dancer-actor part perfect for me. I showed up to the dance call and came face to face with a bevy of beautiful girls, all stretching and kicking their legs. They were the pride of whatever Dolly Dinkle dance studio they graduated from. <laughs> <laughs> all pink leotards, ballet skirts, and tights. Their mothers were at their side, applying makeup and hairspraying their buns or ponytails into place. I had a pixie haircut and a sleek black legging ensemble. I was ready for this. <laughs> the casting director was also the choreographer, and he had been in the original Broadway production of West Side Story. He organized the 80 girls into groups and had everyone skip around the room. The first cut was based on basic movement and answering the question, why do you want to be in this show? <laughs> I think it's a surprisingly current musical, I said. The lyrics talk about drug use and homosexuality and racism, things that are still really central to the issues of our society now. It's an important work with a lot of history that has a lot to say about the future. I made the first cut. <laughs> we were down to 35 girls and we started learning the choreography. I wasn't the best, but I wasn't the worst. And I thought I was hanging in there okay. Second cut. And I was out. Head hanging, fighting back tears, I headed for the door. The woman with the red hair, the choreographer called out. My heart left. Maybe he's giving me a second chance. I hoped and raced over. Listen. I really wanted to cast you, he said. You've got the style, the look, the right figure, uh, the right attitude. You just can't dance. As I struggled to respond, I heard my modern dance professor whispering in the back of my mind her oft-repeated lesson about auditions. People are going to say a lot of shit to you. <laughs> They'll tell you you're no good. They'll give backhanded compliments. Don't argue. Whatever they say, just say thank you. Thank you, I said to him. My professional mask firmly in place. So... If this is what you want to do, he said, you need to get your butt in some dance classes. He shrugged, and I realized he was done. Thank you, I said again, and went to the car to cry my eyes out and call my boyfriend. He met me at home with tacos. <laughs> I eventually dropped the boyfriend, 
but took his advice and moved to New York City. Well, the Bronx. <laughs> and then Brooklyn. And then different Brooklyn. <laughs> Lots of Brooklyn. I couldn't get any jobs dancing. A lot of stage combat. A bit of actors who can move, but very little dancing. I had some luck and a lot of good friends, and I began to meet people in indie theater. For an actor minus any acting experience, I was doing okay. Over the next few years, I built up a resume I was proud of, enough apparently to catch the notice of a casting company. We'd like you to come in for the West Side Story National Tour audition, she told me. Come ready to dance and prepare the solo section from the song Somewhere That Anybody Sings. Confession, uh, I'd only ever seen the movie. I had no idea anybody's sang anything. <laughs> I thought she just danced around looking tough and throwing punches. To prepare, I threw myself into daily jazz classes, and I turned to my multi-talented friend Sarah, begging for a singing lesson. I told her I only wanted the one lesson. That way, if they ask me to sing, which is incredibly unlikely, I'll at least know how the song goes. I am a confirmed alto. But Sarah was determined to get me into the soprano range for the required solo audition piece. With infinite patience and kindness, she coached sounds out of me that were not horrifying, <laughs> even by my own opinion. And miraculously, after an hour of breathing, wiggling my tongue, and singing, ha, ha, he, he, ho, Ooh. I could hit the high F in anybody's solo. <clears throat> I show up to dance call for West Side Story. And it's a gleeified version of my Texas audition. Beautiful boys and girls in ringlet curls and eyeliner singing back and forth down the hall. But I'm being unfair. Everyone looked tense, talking nervously. Others stretched in the corner without looking anyone in the eye. Anytime the audition monitor walked into the room, the wordless din would fade into silence as we watched her for any sign that our time was at hand. In Texas, Anybody's was definitely being cast as a girl, and the part eventually went to a docile, blonde beauty who could out-pirouette the best of them. But the breakdown for the national tour said Anybody's could be played by a boy. I warmed up next to slender young men, their long dancer legs and shaggy bangs hiding the same vulnerability we all felt. There were no stage moms here, only competitors. We eyed each other's flexibility, ogled alignment and anatomy, and tried to guess who would catch the casting director's eye. Finally, we're ushered into the large dance studio and introduced to the choreographer, a British dancer, who immediately began teaching the choreography. He taught it precisely and very quickly, and suddenly, we're dancing. It's happening. 
legs high, drop to the floor, pirouette, jump, land, snap, snap, explode. I'm not the best by a long shot, and in fact, I may very well be the worst dancer in the room, but I've got the right look. I'm fierce and I'm a good actor. I was tough when they needed me to be tough, and I was cool when they needed me to be cool. We were slick with sweat and nerves by the time the audition monitor stopped us after we'd been dancing for about 20 minutes. If we call your name, we would like you to stay for the next round for us to hear you sing. Names. Names. <laughs> Names. Names. And Stephanie Willing. Everyone else, thank you for your time. Oh God, they want me to sing. <laughs> I ran into the waiting room, fumbled with the sheet music I can't read, and tried to slow my heartbeat down enough to breathe and relax my vocal cords like Sarah had taught me. No one had ever wanted to hear me sing. <laughs> again and again I hummed the melody, but even humming my voice broke far below the high F. Stephanie Willing. There's a place for us. I sang. My voice was resonant. And a little rough around the edges. The choreographer and casting director were smiling, supportive, as if thinking, this could work. <laughs> then came the high F. I saw it coming. <laughs> I tried to breathe the H sounds around the note, relax my throat as much as possible, and I belted the least musical sound my voice had ever made. I had effed it all right, never coming close to the note. The auditioner's smiles froze on their faces, and the melody dropped back down to something somewhat manageable. Thank you, Stephanie. We're stopping everyone right there, the choreographer said. That's kind of you. I said, and I walked out. I was heartbroken. I was elated. I was embarrassed. I was proud. Later that day, I would audition for Cats, land the double pirouette on my non-coordinated side and get cut in the first round. I was as proud of that double pirouette as I was of being asked to sing. No one had ever let me get that far. When I was a kid, and someone asked for my family's last name, my mother always answered, willing, like ready, willing, and able. <laughs> for years, I copied her, her interpretation of our patronymic, but now I translate it differently. I'm willing 
this destiny into reality, willing my way through auditions, rejections, lucky turns, and unlucky choices. And my masks mostly stay in place. The I'm charming and professional at all times mask for, the, for when the director says, thanks so much, without making eye contact. When I get obscenely catcalled walking down the street and throw on the tough as nails, and I'm also death mask. When my friends succeed, and I love them, I really do, but in the meantime, I have to put on the, I'm so happy you got the part mask. Or the one I wear the most. The, I totally know what I'm doing mask that I put on when I hope to God no one realizes how terrified I am that everyone will find me out and recognize that I definitely do not know what I am doing. Ma mask on. Mask off. No matter what, just say thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Freshman year of college, newfound freedom, and the history of the Roman Empire teaches our narrator the importance of preparation and paying attention to instructions. From Noted, here is Stephanie Willing performing Jim Carroll's Lacuna. Lacuna. From 7th grade to 12th grade, I went to a public school about 50 miles north of New York City with roughly 800 other students. This is not 800 students in my class or in the high school itself, but the entire district from kindergarten on up. The story I am about to tell you has nothing to do with my high school, but when I tell you that I went directly from there to NYU, population 40,000, I want you to have some context for just how unprepared I was. Because for me, it was sensory overload on every scale, as it is for many small-town students who make the abrupt transition to big city, big university life. And the way I dealt with this bigness was, like many college students, to completely forget about every rule your parents ever told you. I like to believe that on any given night, college students the world over are running through the halls with scissors in their hands for no other reason than they had them some scissors in hand and a good straightaway for getting up speed. <laughs> and while this may seem to be some primal Darwinian urge to cull the clumsier scissored runners from the gene pool, I believe that this is, in truth, Kids making sure that the simple, common-sense wisdom that mom and dad handed down to them is not, in fact, bullshit. The kind of bullshit that they swallowed so readily growing up, like when they needed to be good because Santa was watching. <laughs> Unchecked, this late-night scissor-running drink from the carton and leave the refrigerator door open lifestyle could have had serious consequences on my academic life. It would be very easy to waste a semester's tuition and my parents' goodwill unless I started to connect to the actual school part of college. Fortunately, though, I found my road to salvation through History of Rome the Empire, 40 B.C. to 400 A.D. 
<laughs> a 200 level history class that by its nature freshmen shouldn't have been allowed to take and yet nothing was flagged when I signed up for it. No alarm sounded, no inquiries made as to why me, solid B, non-history majoring me, should be taking this class. I like to think that somewhere the great adding machine that was dutifully sort sorting the classes came across my list and with the electrical, electrical equivalent of a shoulder shrug said, why not? <laughs> now why, one might ask, would some random classical history course interest you? Solid B, non-history majoring you. Well, I was an early reader and I loved books to pieces, literally. I loved <coughs> the Richard Scarry collection, The Adventures of Frog and Toad, and my read-along-with-me version of The Hobbit, the seven-inch record amazingly held up for years. <laughs> Low on inventory, I began to hunt through the house for other things to read, including my mother's copy of Our Bodies, Ourselves. <laughs> In the wake of that incident, uh, I received my first library card, if for nothing else than to hopefully divert my attention away from asking my mom about lesbians. <laughs> Still, this was a big deal even more important than getting the Millennium Falcon the previous Christmas. <laughs> At the time, it was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me. Slowly, carefully, I walked the aisles of the library, touching the spines of as many books as I could, as if I could absorb the contents of each one through my fingers, trying to find the one I wanted to take home. Occasionally, I stopped to uh, more closely examine a Dr. Seuss or a Maurice Sendak, I would slide the book out, feel its weight in my hands, leaf through the pages, and then, knowing I hadn't quite found what I was looking for, return it to its home. This went on for almost half an hour, when I found a book of Greek and Roman mythology. I didn't know anything about these stories. The cover had no Susian talking animal or the promise of wild rumpuses with giant monsters, and this was in no way explicitly related to Star Wars. <laughs> in short, there was no reason for me to give this book anything more than the minimum consideration. But there it was, in my hands, waiting for me. <coughs> when I opened up the book to illustrations of heroes riding winged horses and gods solving their problems with a well-tossed lightning bolt, I immediately and hopelessly fell in love. I read them all. And though the Greek myths were the root, and let's be honest here, the Romans obviously and shamelessly ripped them off, I found myself much more attracted to the Romans. This is, no doubt, a reflection of my family's bias towards all things Italian, <laughs> a prejudice lovingly nourished in me through dishes of baked ziti and meatballs and stories of the old country. So, fast forward 12 years. I am sitting at my dining room table the summer before college trying to unravel the mysteries of the course catalog and feeling completely lost. When I come across this one bit of recognition, some small bit of comfort that, I think, will ease me into college. But when I found myself in the 200-seat lecture hall that could have easily held grades 10 through 12, surrounded by upperclassmen, scholarly men and women all, and much older and wiser than myself, I knew I'd made a huge mistake. These were people who studied, who did not run down halls with scissors, <laughs> and most importantly, they understood why they were there. I began to work out my escape plan. The lecture hall was built with stadium seating, and, stupidly, I had sat up and away from the exit, 
Meaning not only was I a certain casualty if a fire broke out, <laughs> but I would need to pass in front of almost the entire classroom in order to leave. While I was busy working out the humiliation calculus, the professor walked in, and immediately my attitude changed. From the moment I saw him, I understood. Understood that this portly, balding, 40-something teacher had, as a young man, wandered into a college town movieplex in June of 1981 and walked out another person. There was no other way to explain the worn down leather jacket and the brown felt fedora that he carefully removed and placed on the table at the front of the room. I would like to believe that had NYU a more lenient arms policy, he would have had a 10-foot bull with his sidearm just in case someone gets a lead on the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> this man and I were kindred spirits. Nerds, through and through. The kind of people who would not just enjoy a novel or a TV series or a movie, but would grab hold and devour every detail of it. The kind of people who commit the location of, say, Captain Kirk's quarters to memory, Deck 5, Room 3F, 121. <laughs> not because it is critical to the universe, but because knowing that sort of minutia makes them feel that much closer to the universe. Not to where it becomes reality, but to where it feels as if it could be real. Even if my new Indiana Jones cosplaying professor wouldn't know me by anything more than the NYU ID on his grading rubric, I knew the secret about him and the knowing reassured me. As the room settled in, he said, in what I can only describe as an understatement of staggering proportions, please have a pen and paper at all times. You will need to take notes. <laughs> I took many notes. I came to understand that the placement of the fedora was ceremonial. The millinery equivalent to the Kentucky Derby bugle, the device used to call the students to post, we were all quick to learn. When the hat had found its place on the desk, we responded. Notebooks open, pencils up, and we were off. I learned quickly to bring extra pencils to class and have them at the ready, because we never stopped writing. Everything he said was to be recorded, because the professor made no distinction between what was critical, what was useful, and what was fun. And of course he wouldn't, because to him, the world-building completist nerd, the small stuff was just as important. We needed to know, for example, about the graffiti etched onto one of the buildings of the, of the Palatine Hill. Not because of the message it contained, but because of its being there at all. As a result, it was best not to spend too much time thinking about what you were writing. Questioning or even considering whether what you were writing was useful meant that you would miss the next few minutes of notes, which could be ten different subjects, and possibly some actual useful information. No. The smart thing to do was to take dictation and then later unpack your notes and decide for yourself what was and was not important, which I tried to do, except I couldn't decide what was important and what wasn't because I was loving this. This class, this teacher was awesome. The dark side, the one that separated the functioning fan from the obsessive, irritating know-it-all was taking hold. I started to take my class notes and supplement them with my own notes from the books. I began to annoy my friends and roommates by peppering fun Roman facts into the conversation. <laughs> now, looking back, I know it is impossible to casually drop fun facts about the Roman Empire into a conversation because 
there are no fun facts to drop. There was never a college conversation that lent itself to say mentioning that the bundle of rods and axes known as fasces was a symbol that the Roman magistrate who held them had the power to issue a death sentence. No, conversations <laughs> never casually bent themselves towards the topic of Roman trivia that needed to be forcibly subverted and shoehorned <laughs> so that I could make sure that people knew that Nero could not possibly have fiddled during the great fire of Rome because the fiddle hadn't been invented yet. Also, he was in a different city at the time, Antium, present-day Antium, but I digress. <laughs> After several weeks and a few quizzes, we were given our big final assignment, a 15-page paper due the last week of class that would comprise the lion's share of our grade. All of this I reported faithfully. The length of the essay, underlined, the due date, underlined and bolded, and the topic, a biography. I didn't need to underline or bold that because I knew exactly who the biography would be on. Publius Cornelius Tacitus, one of the greatest Roman historians ever, full stop. I turned to a blank page in my notebook and immediately began to outline my paper. How I would touch on his early life, his career as a senator, how his personal life shaped the point of view for his wonderful, well-regarded works. At the time, I believed that this was going to be the greatest paper I ever wrote. Sitting in the great prison library that belongs to NYU, pulling reference books and writing my paper, I realized that this was quickly becoming a defining moment, one that was very leading up to a major life decision, the outcome of which will affect every aspect of my life afterwards, forever. This was my own personal Rubicon to cross, and pending a good grade in the class, on the farther shore, I would declare a major in history, maybe even classical history, maybe even Roman history. We handed in our papers, and the semester slowly wound down. During one of the last classes, I was asked to wait afterwards. The students slowly filed out of the lecture hall until finally we were left alone together in this giant empty space. He sat at the table and pulled idly at the brim of the brown fedora hat, waiting for me while I anxiously pulled up a chair. He asked me about my essay and why I chose Tacitus. I answered as best I could. He remarked that the paper was well written. I beamed. He asked me if I thought Tacitus was ever a ruler of the Roman Empire. Well. He was a senator, I replied. No, I mean a Caesar. No, he was never a Caesar. He cleared his throat and explained the assignment again. You see, while I was busy plotting out my glorious literary achievement, I missed the part where the 15-page essay was to be a biography on a Caesar. Any Caesar. Any Caesar in the 440 years of history that we had studied. Any ruler of the Roman Empire, <laughs> from Julius on down to Romulus Augustulus, the last emperor of, by that time, the Western Roman Empire. It was a small but significant detail that was never noted by me. He asked if I had a good reason for not completing it the way it was intended to be done. I still remember the way he looked at me while waiting for a reply. It wasn't contempt so much as sadness for the poor, slow boy in front of him. <laughs> he couldn't separate his emperors from analysts. The lie was quick and dirty. I was sick that day and got the assignment from one of the other students. 
obviously through malice or incompetence, it was given to me incorrectly. <laughs> I did not major in history. I received a C for the paper. It was well written, after all. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com. <laughs>